Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Several months ago in the Wall Street Journal, there was a piece by two fellows named David Blood and Al Gore. Yes, seriously, there's a piece written by Blood and Gore. Uh, anyway, you've no doubt heard of, of Al Gore. Uh, David Blood is a business partner of his in the so-called renewable energy industry. And they argued with, obviously, many different motives attached, that there's what's called a carbon asset bubble, which has been a, a term in vogue in the last couple of years, uh, which essentially amounts to don't invest in fossil fuels, both because they are immoral, but also the underlying reasons that make them immoral will lead to policies that restrict them in the future, which will make them less valuable, the companies less valuable, and or the environmental devastation they lead to will lead to them uh, being phased out. And therefore, you know, the moral here is the practical, which is a proposition I, I generally agree with, although I, I disagree with the application in this case. And But their conclusion is, well, there's a bubble. And a bubble as in the housing bubble um, of recent years or the dot-com bubble of the early 2000s. The idea is that you know, if somebody invests in coal companies, if they invest in uh, companies practicing hydraulic fracturing, they're being short-sighted, and Al Gore and David Blood uh, are warning us of this. Um, and we saw an interesting uh, blog post, uh, some of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with, but in any case, uh, interesting and raising a lot of issues, by Jeffrey Stiles, who's managing director of GSW Strategy Group, um, and has had a long career in energy, worked for 22 years uh, at Texaco, uh, among other things. And he wrote um, an extensive and well-received blog post on the issue that we'll, we'll link to on our website at the, at the blog called The Energy Collective, which is a pretty well-known energy and environment blog. Um, so I thought we'd bring him on and ask him about his ideas on the subject and uh, definitely learn something. So that is what we'll do. On the other side, we'll have Jeffrey Stiles. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Jeffrey Stiles. Jeffrey, welcome to Power Hour. Alex, good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So a couple months ago, uh, in my inbox, I got a bunch of, of emails telling me you have to read this article by Al Gore and David Blood about the carbon asset uh, bubble. And, and we're here to... Um, the way I found out about you is you wrote a very interesting uh, response to it. But let's go back to that article. What what was that article, and, and what's the significance of it? So they post they published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal um, outlining what they saw as risks to investors of owning the stocks of companies that were involved in fossil fuel businesses, um, oil, gas, and coal, mainly. Um, arising from climate change and from specifically from the responses that the governments, countries were going to be doing over the next um, several decades that would potentially render the value of the assets of these companies um, to be much less than currently valued. Um, that they, uh, they hypothesized that uh, this, this potential overvaluation based on the insufficiently reflecting the risks of climate change um, actually amounted to a, an asset bubble. Um, and that, that was really what caught my attention. I mean, the, the general concept isn't particularly controversial in climate change terms. You know, there's, there's obviously a bunch of uncertainties um, about uh, uh, how fast the climate is warming, um, about how governments will respond to that. 
and what that might mean for not just fossil fuel companies, but indeed for for any companies that are publicly traded and for the entire global economy. Um, so there's a whole bunch of uncertainties around that. So that by itself wasn't controversial. But the idea that that this actually added up to an asset bubble was what what caught my attention. The the Financial Times there's a lot of definitions, but the Financial Times defines an asset bubble as when the prices of securities or other assets rise so sharply and at such a sustained rate that they exceed valuations justified by fundamentals, making a sudden collapse likely, at which point the bubble bursts. Um, so, you know, in order to buy into the argument that Mr. Gore and his colleague were making, um, you really need to accept the notion that the uncertainties around climate change and predictions of both how the climate will change and how governments and companies will respond to it and investors will respond to it um, are sufficiently quantifiable that they actually constitute what he called a material risk um, and that uh, that they should be incorporated into the fundamentals that people use to value companies. This is an interesting type of proposal because, I mean, usually, I mean, if you look at, I guess the housing, the housing bubble is an interesting analogy, although I don't think the analogy holds. But if you just look at a different behavior, I mean, the famous trade by John Paulson and other people uh, you know, who went to quite a bit of effort to figure out how to sell that market short, since it was, it's a difficult thing to do in many ways, technically. But here you have, I mean, here you have publicly traded stocks. It seems like uh, if you really had this great idea that asset prices will fall, wouldn't you just make a lot of money off it or wouldn't you charge people to like, make a lot of money? It's hard to tell how much of it is is political activism and the attempt to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy versus they're really worried about your assets. Well, indeed. I think there's, there's several different ways to interpret the argument that Mr. Gore is making. Um, you just articulated one of them that, you know, basically the, this is, this is not looking after the best interest of investors, but is intended as a form of, you know, a subtle form of political activism, um, really with the intention of creating uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy, um, that if you can get enough people concerned about this issue, um, and have them, uh, flee investments in these kinds of assets as they, in fact, uh, suggest in their, their op-ed that people might want to divest these holdings, um, that in fact you can you could crash the values of these companies. Um, that's one way to read it. I mean, an, another way to read it, I think a, a slightly less nefarious reading of it would be that um, clearly Mr. Gore is, is heavily invested in a number of companies that stand to gain significantly if, if governments invest heavily in the responses to climate change that he's suggesting. Renewable energy, energy efficiency, a whole whole slate of options. Um, and that, in effect, you, you could read this as sort of a uh, a marketing piece for the companies in which he's invested um, and suggesting that, that their likely investment outcomes um, will be better over the next decade or two than investments in competing energy investments and traditional energy. Um, so that's sort of a middle-of-the-road kind of, of reading of, of this sort of piece. Um, or you can simply take it at face value and assume that Mr. Gore loses sleep over whether um, pension funds, other uh, other investors are, in fact, exposed to the, the horrible hazards of, uh, of these kinds of risks. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not too concerned about what his exact motive is. I mean, he certainly, his activism certainly has a common thread in terms of we're causing, you know, increases in CO2 emissions are causing catastrophic climate change and we need to take immediate action. Uh, one thing that, that strikes me is an increasing tendency uh, by that movement to find, A, alternative ways of accomplishing their goals, such as divestment and, and well, divest, you know, campus divestment, but also mass divestment, but also the attempt to make it seem like this is just a sound financial decision and, and to cloak it 
in, I mean, maybe other people wouldn't say cloak it, but, but I would say to cloak it in economic terminology, this is, just a, this is just a sound investment decision I'm telling you to make. This is not a huge sacrifice, which was what many would say. I think that's right, and and I mean certainly the the op-ed itself is is written in the terminology um, that you know would be familiar to investors, um, terminology around risk management and uh, you know sound investment practices and things like that. And, and I have to say, I mean, you know, I, I'm not suggesting that people should entirely ignore this issue. Um, I think that there, you know, it merits some some thought. Um, when you're investing in these sorts of companies, you know, how do you think this issue will play out over the next 20 years, 10 years, whatever you think the, the time horizon that, that you're going to be holding those stocks or that um, would determine the value of those stocks? I mean, how far out um, does the market really look when it's valuing an investment in, in these sorts of companies or in any company? Um, so I, you know, I think that that's reasonable, and I think even from a, you know, from a climate perspective, um, first of all, that, you know, not not buying the argument that there is a carbon bubble, um, carbon asset bubble, um, does not require one to be a, a denier of climate change. Um, the, the the proposition that there's a carbon bubble, uh, I think, arises naturally from the science of climate change, in the abstract. Uh, certainly, if, if the entire edifice of anthropogenic climate change is correct, um, and the, the current consensus around that within the scientific community, um, and we could argue that point, but I won't, um, then, in fact, the, the idea of, of a carbon bubble, or carbon, sorry, a carbon budget, which is the underlying principle of the carbon bubble, we should talk about the budget, um, the idea that there is, in fact, an amount of carbon that you could burn before you would um, create uh, sort of, uh, if not a tipping point, then at least past the level of dangerous climate change. Um, that's a reasonable proposition. Where I think where I think the argument breaks down, um, having some familiarity with with the science, is whether that in fact can be quantified today. Um, I would argue strongly that it it can't be quantified today. Um, the 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 argument that Mr. Gore makes, in fact, he specifically references um, a climate budget that's been calculated by the International Energy Agency, and in one of their scenarios, uh, the 450 scenario, um, lays out how much oil, natural gas, and coal can be burned over the next 50 years um, without exceeding 2 degrees Celsius total cumulative warming versus pre-industrial. Um, but if you, when you start to unpack that, there are an awful lot of assumptions that go into that calculation. Um, and, and even the IEA would say that, you know, they're, they're only looking at a, a number that gives them a 50% chance of not exceeding 2 degrees C. But even that probability is, is based on some highly uncertain parameters within climate science. Yeah, so in, in your... It, I think we, uh, it'll be good to go through uh, the myths that you named as, as you worded them. So the first one you have is the quantity of carbon that can be burned is known uh, precisely, which which you're getting at. Although um, you, you mentioned that the current temperature estimates are something like 0.8 degrees Celsius warming so far, and then I think you mentioned later that the IPCC has 95% confidence that at least half of that is is man-made what's what's your confidence in that i mean particularly given there are reasons to suspect that it's its ability to understand the climate is is lacking given its modeling lack of success look i mean the, the, there are certainly scientific methods for <clears throat> excuse me trying to understand for instance what proportion of the co2 in the atmosphere comes from fossil sources as opposed to you know, the decay of, of vegetation and things like that. Um, you use isotopic analysis and that kind of thing. Um, but again, I mean, all of this hinges on climate models, which, you know, still include significant uncertainties and which are constantly being refined. Um, it, it, it depends on data sets that are also constantly being refined. Um, awful lot of uncertainties in there. When, when, when the IPCC says 
100% confidence. I think that's a, a pretty subjective estimate, um, dressed up as a, as a highly precise kind of, of figure. So this whole argument really, I think, revolves around a distinction that, that's made in science between accuracy and precision. Um, there's an awful lot of precision here, but whether it's accurate or not, um, I think is really unknowable at this point. I was, I was looking this morning on, uh, on a couple of websites. Um, look, for example, at the, uh, the Carbon Tracker website. They're, they're one of the groups that proposes this idea that there's a, a carbon bubble, um, based on a carbon ass, carbon ass, carbon budget. Um, when you go to their website, they say, already in 2011, the world has used over a third of its 50-year carbon budget of 886 gigatons of carbon dioxide, leaving 565 gigatons of carbon dioxide, presumably, to be burned. Um, how in the world you can arrive at that level of precision and put any credence in it about something that has such significant uncertainties in it over the next um, 50 or 90 years, um, it just defies logic. Um, you know, the, uh, the estimates of climate sensitivity, which is one of the key parameters that's used to come up with these carbon budgets, it's, it's defined as the, the amount of warming that would result from doubling the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide compared to pre-industrial levels, so going from roughly 280 to 560. Um, the current IPCC fifth assessment report, so the, the, the latest um, consensus document on climate science that's just been published, um, indicates a range of that temperature outcome, I believe it's 1.5 to 4.5 degrees C, with a confidence of between 66% and 100%. So this is a pretty wide band and a relatively wide confidence level um, to, be, to be trying to specify a number with that degree of precision. So you've got um, uncertainty around the climate response. Um, you've also got uncertainty around what these actual reserves are out there. Um, and that's a, that's another subject that's that's worth some conversation. I mean, particularly if you've if you've followed the history of reserve adjustments um, by OPEC producing countries, um, there's some very interesting numbers and some some reasons to suspect that that maybe all of those adjustments didn't necessarily reflect new findings with the drill bit or changes in drilling technology. Um, that made people think that there was more oil than there had been previously. Um, so you've got all of these uncertainties revolving around each other, um, and yet uh, this is being portrayed as a very precise uh, calculation on which investors should be basing their estimates of a material risk, as opposed to a bunch of uncertainties, which I think are reasonable to look at. So it's it's really the question of how how carefully and thoroughly this this issue can really be quantified given the current state of the science a couple of things strike me um one is with the issue of uncertainty usually with a good i mean i'm not an investor but just reading reading things that i find well written or compelling by investors they they seem one thing is they seem pretty objective about uncertainties and they admit them even if you see a good business plan it will often not just be completely rosy or say we're we're hundred percent sure our new social media thing will get five million users. They'll say, well, here are the obstacles and here are the challenges and here are the variables. And here the gore and blood uh, piece seems more like just we've got the perfect numbers off tea leaves and also we're giving you everything, which I, I also find weird because the whole variable of human adaptation is not mentioned and yet in my understanding of the history of these things that's that's decisive in terms of whatever's happened to the climate we we have traditionally gotten safer from it because we have a lot of energy and a lot of technology so what what do you make of this being more in effect having more i would say pseudo certainty to it than a real investment uh no pitch well taking a slightly different tack on that i think 
in, in effect, it, it comes down to a question of whether Mr. Gore and, and folks like this have a clearer reading of this than large investors such as pension funds who have you know, a lot of folks on staff who are paid to analyze issues just like this. Um, the investment analysts on Wall Street who spend their lives digging through the nuts and bolts of company valuations and making their recommendations to investors on what the issues are that investors should be worried about. You know, I think one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, if the whole idea of a bubble would have a lot more credence if Mr. Gore and, and, and his colleagues were digging up or had identified something that was really a new issue to investors that had been um, somehow bubbling under the surface, had not been uh, widely identified and well understood, and that, that they had discerned this and were now bringing it to everybody's attention um, suddenly. But I think that, that there's quite a different reality here. I mean, if you, if you look at the history of um, publicly traded companies in, in the energy sphere, um, many of these companies have had shareholder initiatives presented to their annual meetings going back for more than a decade. I, I, I spent a large portion of my career working at uh, Texaco, Inc., and I know that in the 1990s, Texaco routinely was dealing with uh, investor groups on these issues, on you know, what, to what degree does climate change represent uh, a risk to the company's assets and valuation and things like that. This is anything but a new issue. So to argue that an issue that has been in the, on the radar screen of investors for more than a decade um, has been either so misunderstood or so um, neglected that it suddenly rises to the level of concern that it has created a, a bubble uh, in these assets, I think that stretches credibility. Um, you know, the asset test for this, and, and I have to admit I'm, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think about this when I was writing the, the blog post that, uh, that you spotted, um, is to actually look at how some of these stocks have behaved um, compared to the broader market. And this morning I just I went online and, and I did a little snapshot history of, of several companies that might be indicators around this. So I looked at, uh, uh, from the coal sector, I looked at Peabody and Console, from uh, oil and gas, I looked at ExxonMobil, and from the independent oil and gas side, I looked at Devon Energy. So if there were actually a bubble in the assets of, of companies like this, you would expect that over the last three to five years, they would have significantly outperformed um, the broad indicator of, of the stock market, the S&P 500 index, for instance. Um, in fact, when, when you look at it, you find quite the opposite. Now, there are certainly companies that have done better than the S&P 500, but on a five-year look back as of this morning, S&P 500 is up 114%. So this goes back to um, the, the trough following the financial crisis. Um, over that same interval, um, the coal companies that I looked at are up, are either up 38% or down 27%. Um, ExxonMobil is up 26%, and Devon Energy is essentially flat over the period. So it, it's hard to look at those valuations and, and discern anything that might, somebody might assume with bubble-like behavior. Now, if you want to, if you want to look for a bubble, look, you look a little further back, and it's pretty clear that um, all of the energy companies were involved in some kind of a bubble in the 2006-2007 timeframe. But that's not a surprise because you had global oil prices um, having gone from a level of the 30s in 2002 to almost $150 a barrel in mid-2007. So. In fact, there was some kind of a bubble, and it had nothing to do with carbon. It had everything to do with oil prices. Um, and that, that dissipated and has not returned. So, you know, I think even on the, the very practical assessment of, of how the stock market is, is treating these companies, it's, it's hard to see that there's a bubble here. Um, in the point of... Oh, I'm sorry? 
No, that's oh, correct. Just, just the, the the point about actually look. I, I was I was thinking of this earlier in the interview of, of looking at at the trends because um, I don't have a, a full map in my mind of what what bubble encompasses and what it doesn't. But if just looking at the housing market, what you see is this incredible optimism and then valuations that seem out of touch with earnings and, and reality and and these these dramatic dramatic increases and that's what i haven't seen with the fossil fuel industry certainly not out of proportion with the success of certain say certain companies and say shale oil or or, or shale gas um and it, it's yeah and as you said there's no there's no brand new piece of information that suggest that these companies should be worth, you know, some multiple of times less. And yet at the same time, it seems like there is this expectation that implicit expectation in this whole article that solar and wind are unbelievably undervalued and they themselves are going to uh, undergo an increase in valuation that would make the housing industry look mild by comparison. Exactly. And there's no question that solar and wind are growing at dramatic rates, I mean, rates that, that any other industries would envy. Um, when you unpack the reasons that they're growing that rapidly, um, they have everything to do with national policies around renewable energy and climate change, um, and relatively little to do with um, the actual cost and productivity of these technologies, although both of those parameters are, are improving significantly. Um, the cost of, of solar technology in particular has, has come down dramatically over the last several years, um, in, in large part as a result of some pretty substantial overinvestment in the capacity to produce solar panels, um, mainly in developing Asia and mainly in China. Um, you know, China almost single-handedly crashed the, gl the global solar market um, by applying uh, low-cost manufacturing techniques at large scale to uh, a market that had previously been dominated by uh, largely European companies that were seemingly pretty high-cost competitors. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly a, a, an argument here on, on the part of, of Mr. Gore and others that um, these companies are... are not only growing rapidly, but that their valuations should, at some point in the future, approach the valuations of today's large energy companies. And yet that seems like a typical precarious situation in the sense of if it's based on certain production tax credits and other things that can be taken away at any given time, particularly as uh, you know, governments here or in foreign countries get tired of those subsidies or they feel like they're not getting the results. That that seems like it can just as easily be a bubble, whereas this other side is saying, in effect, well, you know, they have this view that, well, solar fossil fuels aren't actually affordable, they're just subsidized, and if you price in the externalities, they'd be even more expensive. But it's, it seems like one, one side of the prediction, all, all of this depends on, or a huge amount of it depends on, on government policy, which is exactly what Gore has been agitating to change for a long time. Correct. That's absolutely right. So, and in that way, it also has a different, different character than certain bubbles. Bubbles, at least, say the the Nasdaq bubble, and we can talk about how Fed policy ties to that, and what and whatnot. But it, it's, it's interesting, and I think somewhat unfair to. It seems like a common practice to just apply terminology. It doesn't seem like even if it's. Even if there will be a problem, I think to call it a bubble is is trying to cash in on the credible idea and trying to make it a hard-headed investment thing versus, no, we have a forecast of uh, catastrophe, and part of it will be that that those of you who are currently involved in producing the energy of... We'll have a catastrophe. We'll probably have a lot less energy uh, to use, and part of that will be the energy that we're using right now the aggregate value of that will be a lot less. But this, this just seems like, oh, we're making a hard-headed investment decision and you'll make a lot of money as long as you put it into the companies that we also happen to be putting it into. Indeed. You know, one of, one of the aspects of the carbon bubble argument, um, if, you, if you look at the scenario that, that Mr. Gore based his argument on, the, the International Energy Agency's 450 scenario, which basically says that the, the global atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration won't be allowed to exceed 450 parts per million. It's getting uh, 
close to 400 now. So uh, basically what that does is that, that takes existing policies and it ratchets them up. It assumes that everybody is going to meet every pledge that they made at Cancun a couple of years ago. In addition to that, people will um, make st- stricter pledges and, and honor those, um, but they will also um, phase out all of the global subsidies for fossil fuels. The whole, the whole argument around uh, which, which energy form gets the most subsidies uh, has been uh, intensifying recently, and there's been an awful lot of attention focused on the subsidies that fossil fuels are getting as distinct from the subsidies that renewable energy gets. It turns out that the vast majority of the subsidies that fossil fuels receive um, are in developing countries, and they're subsidies that are given um, basically to reduce the, the price of these fuels below market levels for consumers um, to, to enable folks in developing countries to have greater access to the fuels that they need for the basic necessities of life, including you know, heating and cooking and things like that. Um, relatively little of those subsidies uh, involves the kind of things that are labeled subsidies in the U.S., which you know, are really um, proxies for other kinds of tax policy that we have in place for most, um, most businesses, things like depreciation and that sort of thing. Um, if you compare the value of those subsidies on oil and gas, for instance, to the subsidies that are received by renewable energy, such as wind and solar, um, the level of the subsidies is dramatically less for fossil fuels. And I think what that says is that whether those subsidies are there or not, if you remove them overnight, you wouldn't have a big impact on the sales of fossil fuels. You might have a small impact on the profitability, short-term profitability of some of the companies that are producing them, but you wouldn't change the marketplace very much. Um, However, if you removed the subsidies that are currently in place for renewable energy, which are quite a bit larger, I mean, two, two cents per kilowatt hour for wind, it's actually 2.3 cents with inflation adjustment. Um, that's a pretty large subsidy in a market where a lot of wind power is being sold for five cents or less. So um, if you removed those subsidies, I think you'd see a dramatic change in the market for those forms of energy. Um, so I think that the, the whole issue of subsidies that's, that's buried in the arguments around the, the carbon bubble um, has been I think misunderstood and, and to some degree distorted to try and make the the argument for renewables appear stronger than than it actually is. I I have a question about risk since I happen to ha- have you on the line and how how we think about risk. One thing that strikes me here is that there's there's this talk of all of these different risks of you know man-made possibly catastrophic climate change from the use of fossil fuels and and uh, gore and blood certainly talk about that. I rarely see any talk about the risk of policies to dramatically reduce the use of the you know the energy that essentially runs civilization and then attempts to uh, replace baseload capacity with uh, intermittent solar and wind. What what do you think of that? I mean, even not discussing that uh, as a risk, even though our life depends on those sources of energy. Fossil fuels well, right I, now, I think you can take it a step further. I, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying, but at, at the same time, you know, all you have to do is look back to the financial crisis that we just went through a couple of years ago um, to see how dependent the development of new energy forms and um, particularly government responses to climate change are on the health of the global economy, um, on on the growth rates in GDP uh, around the world, particularly in developing countries, but also in the developed, particularly in the developed world, which has had the strongest climate policies. Um, we saw that when um, a when those those growth rates slowed down and then in some cases went into reverse, um, one of the first things that happened was that the momentum towards things like cap and trade in the U.S. Um, and other forms of of climate policies in other countries suddenly slowed or stopped um, because it turned out that folks were much more concerned about pocketbook 
book issues than they were concerned about potential climate risks 20, 30, 50, 90 years down the road. Um, I think this, the same thing holds in terms of energy. I think if just just, just imagine that that the the arguments that Mr. Gore makes were actually adopted by a majority of investors, and that you know bubble or no bubble, that the the asset values of these companies crashed because people assumed that um, all of this this argument is correct and that they need to flee these assets before they tumble as a result of climate policy. Um, assume that's all correct. What happens? Well, what ends up happening is that you know a number of companies um, potentially fail. Um, those that don't fail um, face significant constraints in their ability to raise capital, which means that they are no longer able to continue investing to keep production going. Um, one of the, the facts about the hydrocarbon business is that um, if you stop investing, your production will start shrinking the next day. Um, these are, in fact, depleting assets. Um, and if you, if you don't keep reinvesting, if you don't keep drilling more wells in the oil and gas business, um, the wells that you have will decline at different rates, but you know, in a year, your production will be lower. In two years, your production will be lower than that. And in three or four years, it'll be significantly lower than that. If all of that happens, what what's the consequence globally? Well, it's, it's very clear what the consequence is. Um, oil prices, natural gas prices would rise dramatically. Um, you would have, in fact, an energy shock ripple through the global economy. And the result of that shock would be another major economic setback. Um, perhaps on the scale of what we just went through. And what would be the likely consequence of that? I would argue that one of the first things that would happen is that longer-term issues like climate change would again move to the back burner, um, and action on that would be deferred. Hardly, hardly the outcomes that they're looking for. Yeah, so how, how would you characterize that? It's not exactly a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not... Well, it's, it's a classic unintended consequence. So, you know, here's here's your argument, but here's the unintended consequence if people actually adopt the the course of action that you're recommending. Um, and I think you're kind of obligated to to think those things through before you make suggestions like this. Um, so it certainly would benefit renewable energy companies, um, although perhaps not as much as you might guess. I mean, there was there was an interesting thing that occurred. Um, over the last few years when when oil and gas prices were going up dramatically, I think everybody assumed that the minute oil crossed $100 a barrel, every form of renewable energy, alternative energy that was out there would suddenly become economical, and it turned out that wasn't the case. Um, I think uh, somebody coined the term the law of receding horizons, that uh, you know, the, the costs of many of these other technologies turned out to be linked in some fashion to some of the same things that were driving up the cost of conventional energy. And it turned out that uh, even at $145 a barrel, um, many forms of renewable energy were not, in fact, economically competitive with oil. Yeah, I think just uh, I just stress again to, to listeners the point about it's really scary if you're talking about deliberately increasing the prices of of these things, you know, which would be different than out competing them over a long, long period of time and replacing their functionality. But I mean, we had we had without this, hundred forty, hundred fifty dollars a barrel, which was, uh, you know, which is is dramatic. But the idea of, of and and I mean the the exact policy here. I mean, the whole idea of a budget is is that, you know, this shouldn't be allowed to come out of the ground. Well. Unless, unless demand magically shrinks by the same amount as they want to shrink the usage, and the usage shrinking, shrinkage is sort of shockingly, that shrinkage is shockingly high, then that just would be much, much higher prices. And it doesn't take that much for oil prices to rise with modest increases in, in demand or decreases in supply. Well, that, that's right. And, and if you go back to the IEA um, scenarios that a lot of this is, is tied to, um, the IEA's analysis is, is very clear that over, at least over the, the 
period through 2035, um, even if you adopted everything that's required in order to hold um, emissions, uh, the global atmospheric concentration of CO2 to the 450 parts per million level, even if that was all put in place, global oil production would still have to be around 75 million barrels a day. Um, natural gas production, I believe it ends up being slightly higher than it is today, and coal production ends up being a fair amount lower. Um, so you still end up using significant amounts of fossil fuels. I think that the, the global percentage of, of fossil fuel market share, the global market share of fossil fuels declines from 86% to something like 80% in their main scenario, um, and is still in the, the 60s, even in the most severe scenario. So, you know, you're still using a lot of fuel, fossil fuels, even if you adopt all of these extreme measures. And if you're using that much fossil fuel, it's not clear that the prices end up being significantly lower. Price being one of the main factors that goes into to the valuation of these companies. So I think it's another weakness of the argument around uh, an asset bubble because if you're going to crash the values of these companies, you would you would think that you would also have to crash the value of fossil fuels themselves. Uh, right, and you often hear the reverse the reverse dynamic being discussed when we talk. The oil price goes up, and we hear all this talk of windfall profits. But here, there's a scenario where the oil price is going to go way up, and yet they're supposed to take losses, which is why you should sell your their companies. Exactly. Um, well, we're starting to run low on our, we're talking about carbon budget, on our, our time budget here, and, and we're not going to be able to get through these uh, five, all of these five, although we've discussed them in one way or another. But um, what, would, what do you think are the most important things for listeners to take away on this issue? Uh, you know, as, as I indicated in, in the post that I wrote, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting for a minute that people should ignore these issues. You know, if, if you accept that climate change is a reality, um, if you are persuaded by the arguments around the kinds of forecasts that are being made of it becoming worse in the future, then you, know, you ought to be thinking about how that could affect companies that are involved in, in the energy space in all aspects of energy, not just fossil fuels. But I think it's, it's, it's quite a step, I would argue it's a leap, from, from that point to saying that at, at as of today, this is capable of such detailed quantification that it rises to the same sort of risks that we saw in the subprime housing market bubble um, in terms of the value of, of energy stocks. Um, I think that that's an enormous leap, and I, I, would, I would caution people to be very careful about making decisions based on the assumptions that are incorporated in that kind of an argument. Um, you need to need to look a lot deeper into it and decide for yourself whether, in fact, all of these assumptions are justified, and whether even if even if they all lined up perfectly, um, the market would respond in the way that these folks are suggesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of reason to believe that even if if all of those even if all of their assumptions turned out to be correct, the market could actually behave quite differently than they imagine it could. Given that you have experience, uh, you mentioned working at Texaco, and, and you mentioned that it's important that this is not a new issue, what's, what's your, your forecast, and you can include any uncertainties, of how this, this movement, and I, I think of it as part of the broader divestment movement, but how, how this movement will play out over, over the next decade or so? That's a great question, um, and, and I think there's there's no question that the whole realm of sustainability investing is becoming more mainstream. Um, a lot more investors are looking at these kinds of issues when they make investment decisions, and I think that that's a good thing. Um, at the same time, I think that you know even if you end up with a significant reshuffling of the people who are investing in fossil fuels, the, the kinds of fuels that are basically running the global economy. Um, it doesn't necessarily lead to a collapse in the, the value of these assets. Um, as 
stocks sell down, other people become interested in them as buyers, and that takes them back up. I think it would be an interesting dynamic to watch, even if this movement picked up steam. Um, you might still not end up with with the result that they're looking for. Um, you might end up with a group of investors who who feel better about what they're invested in, but without having significantly changed the overall complexion of the stock market and the, the different sectors in it. Um, but I, I think it's definitely an issue to watch. Um, I, I always get nervous when when people make such strong arguments as, as were made in the op-ed um, that you know, basically are, are, I think, trying to create an outcome rather than warning people about an outcome. Um, but it's it's all part of the give and take out there, and I think you know for every for every argument that we heard about peak oil in the last ten years, there was a there was a counter argument. You know, a, a champion emerged on the other side and said, you know what, here's why um, you can believe in peak oil, but not believe that it's happening in the next five to ten years. Um, so I think we're going to see a similar kind of dynamic play out around this issue of a carbon bubble. I don't think it's I don't think the idea is about to disappear. There's some well-funded groups pushing it. Um, but I think you know other people will remind investors that there's two sides to the story, and that you know by no means is is this a certainty. All right, Jeff. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program and sharing your perspective. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to Jeffrey Styles for coming on the uh, program. Just one thought that I want to highlight at the end, which is that. There's been this multiplication of terms associated with fossil fuels and climate. I mean, there's global warming, there's climate change, there's climate disruption, there's extreme weather, there's carbon cap, cap and trade, carbon asset bubble, carbon tax, carbon externalities, and one important thing in thinking about all of these is that, and and each one can seem like a new issue unto itself, and they're they're really all the same issue, and I think all require the same basic methodology, uh, which is the 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 claim is that there's or the the, I mean the issue is is there some significant harm done by increasing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the way that burning fossil fuels does. That's that's really the question. And that's the question that has to be studied carefully, and it has to be studied carefully in a couple of ways. One is that it has to, to be studied in terms of human life. Uh, there's way too much focus on individual uh, statistics like, well, what exactly is the change in the global mean temperature anomaly? Well, that has relevance, but ultimately the question is, what is the implication of that uh, for human life? And the second thing, which is related, is that when we look at the impact on human life, we have to look at, at the full context. So that means, or the big picture, and so that means we have to look at what CO2 does to the climate, what other factors might counteract that, uh, but particularly how the what um, how human beings adapt to it, if there's any negative, how they benefit from it or utilize it even more, uh, if there's any positive, and then of course the po- massive positive of the product, which is fossil fuel energy, of which the CO2 is a byproduct. So we need to take a human-centered and and big picture or full context approach, and I find that often. By presenting each of these as a new thing, uh, the debate is just repeatedly assuming that that CO2 emissions are catastrophic. That's precisely the assumption that needs to be challenged and has in no way uh, been demonstrated or, or well substantiated, uh, I believe. Which is different than is it well demonstrated that CO2 has some impact on climate, uh, which I think it is, although the magnitude of that is very much in dispute. So as always, uh, while there are many different complexities of issues, the basic methods that we apply uh, should remain the same. So being human-focused and being big picture gets us an enormous, uh, enormous way toward 
resolving things and allows us to know how to interpret different claims and, and data, etc. All right, that'll be it for this week. Uh, check me out next Thursday on Fox Business, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, on the Stossel Show. I forget if I mentioned this last week. I had originally thought it was going to be on the on the 16th, uh, but it's it's actually a week later. But uh, it should be exciting. Now I'm not 100 percent sure that I'll that I'll be on, but I did tape a you know, fairly substantial segment, and I, I have good reason to think that I'll be on. In any case, uh, check it out and and complain to the producers if if they don't if they don't feature me. Uh, I'm sort of kidding. Um, besides that, uh, I'm working on my book, which is the title keeps changing. But right now it's it's the case for fossil fuels, which is going to come out. Believe in November from Portfolio slash Penguin. Uh, that's very exciting. Uh, it's it's fun to be back to writing. Although you know writing writing is very hard, but uh, it has it has more rewards than it has than it has hardships for sure. Uh, so um, hopefully in in upcoming shows we'll we'll be focused on topics that are, are related to the book, and so you'll get some sense of some of the new material that's going to be in the book. And with that, I'll do the usual wrap-up. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Make sure to visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, and also on Twitter at twitter.com slash alexepstein. Most important of all, if you're not on the newsletter, get on it at industrialprogress.com slash movement industrialprogress.com slash movement. Movement is the name of the newsletter. And there's one more thing that's, uh, that is slipping my mind, but that's okay. Uh, I will remember it, and if it's important, I will tell you about it next week. And next week, we'll be, we will be back with another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.